1: Hello and welcome to episode 152 of the Washed Up Emo podcast. I am Tom Mullen from washedupemo.com. Today, we welcome John Vanderslice. I found out about John through his album in 2000 called Mass Suicide Occult Figurines, which is out on Barsouk Records. It stuck with me and I've followed him since. Last month, he released his latest album, The Cedars, on native cat recordings, He's on tour right now with Paper the Lion, and it is worth a listen if you've never died into the mind of Banderslice. We talk about how he started late music, how creating that music has taken some narcissism to survive. Talk about loss of life and the depression that he's been dealing with, and how this album saved his life. Plus, we dive into discussion about having fame and critical acclaim early on in your career and what that does to you during and after. This is probably one of the most emotional episodes that I've done is John really opened up about his struggles with dependency on drugs and the battle he has every day with life, creating art, and keeping his recording studios, Tiny Telephone, afloat. Many of your favorite albums have been recorded there, like ones from Death Cab for Cutie, Sleater Kinney, Deer Hoof, The Mountain Goats, Magnetic Fields, and Spoon. A man not afraid to say what he feels and talk it out. I think you'll really enjoy this discussion. Thanks to all the Patreon supporters out there. You make this happen. If you want to support, head on over to patreon.com slash washedupemo. This is episode 152 of the Washed Up Emo podcast with John Vanderslice. Tiny little things came pouring out of my machine. I just typed a word and I just pressed return. Someone made this easy. Made this and
2: never doubled. Well, I think that so there wasn't really music in my in my house growing up. I grew up in Florida. I mean, my parents were great. My mom was amazing but there was not uh like it was not a, like an elevated cultural
3: like <laughs> you know
2: like uh household i mean it was like it's just some backwood shit so the the way there's two ways that i found music and and i think that you see this with a lot of like youth group kids like i like when people who are have been like denied music get it um and it's it, like, means a lot more sometimes than people who have, like, access and encouragement. Um, so, there wasn't music in the house ever. And the, there was only two times that I ever was, like, introduced to, like, like, contemporary music when I was growing up. One was when we would stay with my grandfather on Swanee River. He had a trailer, uh, like, a, you know, like a trailer park. And we would stay in his trailer, and he had a porch with a jukebox, like a forty-five jukebox on it, and which seems insane to me now. Like, I have no, no idea how he got it and why, like that was like a thing for him. But he allowed my cousin Sammy to pick all of the forty-fives, and Sammy was a complete black sheep of the family, who would like you know dropped acid when he was fifteen, sixteen years old, and he had gotten <laughs> radicalized. You know, and and like radicalized, I mean, like for the South at this, you know, at this point, you know what I mean? Like it wasn't mm-hmm. like, I mean, it was like, like Led Zeppelin and Leonard Skinner and, you know, like, like early Grateful Dead and stuff like that. But for me in the context of, of like growing up in rural Florida, it was absolutely, completely mind blowing and, and seemingly, you know, like antisocial radical music. And um, so that was my first experience of hearing what I thought to be was like really um, harmonically confusing and aggressive, um, aggressive stuff. And then the second thing was when I was in um, fourth grade, I had like a crazy crush on my babysitter and she brought over, the the who's um Tommy uh record with soundtrack recording, not the album Tommy, but like the film
3: soundtrack mm-hmm.
2: with like Tina Turner and like and and I remember that she put that on and it was like it was like it might as well have been like Anton Bayburn. Like it was completely dissonant and like unknowable. And I remember connecting that feeling with her and like my like absolute adoration of her, and and it was like everything I wanted to understand, and everything that I wanted out of life was like. I mean, I remember. I remember the day. I, I mean, it's completely cleared, and I, I rem- that day is probably like one of the most important days of my life. And so, for better, for worse, I was completely <laughs> transformed by like those two. Experiences
1: with not having music or having that limited access. What was the way that you like? What after that moment? What was? Was it the local record store? Was it your friends? Like, how were you then? You know, because that all happens to us. We start going on that rabbit hole, and we start just. We can't get enough. What What happened after that?
2: It was all cassette culture. Like from that point on, it was. It was about. Seeking out um, mixtapes, dubs of records, and and finding people who were savvier and smarter than you and more experienced, so they could like transfer their musical knowledge. And this is problematic too, because those people are all, can be or were potentially for me problematic nodes because of drugs. Um, and they tended to be older. I had an older brother and they tended to be like further down the road than I was. So you kind of were, were like almost speeding up your own development by seeking out this music. I remember getting, um, a mixtape on it when I was a mixtape when I was in sixth grade and it had, it had yes, fragile and it had Pink Floyd, dark side of the moon and it had some early Genesis on it. And it had Led Zeppelin three and it was like a older, st- I think, he- I think it was a kid that was like my brother's age he was two years older. And I just remember like completely accepting um, his world in my own. <laughs> like <Yeah. laughs> like whatever, if he was shooting heroin, thank God he was like not shooting him, but whatever that person was doing, like, would have been completely and totally acceptable to me, and so I was almost like fast tracked into um, like adult, I, you know, somewhat reckless adult behavior um, because of because I basically found myself seeking out and hanging out with like older kids to get like tapes. There was there was no other way to do it. There were records were insanely expensive and. I don't even know if we had a turntable at home. I don't. I just don't remember. I just know that we had a boombox, and that was like my conduit for music.
1: You know what's interesting about that is we talk a lot on this podcast about you know the streaming era and not having something to look at. Now that you're talking about the mixtapes, you're totally right. You had that guy writing in the the songs, if he even did that, it might've just said, yes, fragile, Pink Floyd, Dark Side of the Moon, Genesis, like it, it might not even have had, so there was like a, an element of unknown on the record or on the tape. Absolutely. And yeah. that's almost like it is a little bit now with streaming where there isn't like, you didn't have the records to look through and stare at the photos. Yeah.
2: Well, and also there was like a curatorial, like I, aspect where there were, you know, my, when I look back on this, like my brother's friends had like really, really good taste in music. Like, I mean, I got incredibly lucky and my brother had good taste in music and this really changed how my brain developed, how I first started playing guitar and, and the the kind of the influences that I, I mean, I, I completely, identify with all of that music that radicalized I me mean, I don't I really haven't rejected it at all you know I mean I probably did for a window but like it feels like as relevant as anything in my life and so I, I think back to like like how lucky I was in a way that like that I was running in a circle where people had a pretty elevated like sense of music. And and yeah, people were curating this stuff.
1: In those records, people think that they were revered. I mean, they definitely had their share of flack in the press.
2: Oh, absolutely. Something like fragile was like embarrassing at the time. I thought, I mean, there were so many people that despised prog music when I was growing up that it was like the idea. I remember meeting someone, like they were a client of a studio and they were in their early twenties and they told me how much they liked early. Yes. And I, I, and they were like hip as fuck. And I, I just thought, Oh my God, like, <laughs> this is the funniest thing that I've ever seen in my life. Because this was like, you would definitely get, I don't even know what the, like the analog today would be, but this is, it just wasn't even like kitschy. Do you know what I mean? Like yeah. there's just no room for something like that. And and, you know, the lines were more clearly drawn then, for sure. I mean, the whole, like, iPod shuffle thing just kind of, like, destroyed the idea of music genres, which is amazing. And also the idea of identifying with the genre or, or believing that, that any of this stuff is real and not just, like, clothing that you can, like, you know, put on or, you know, it's like, a th- it's like a theater piece, you know. But, I mean, a lot of these bands were, I mean, the Grateful Dead was absolutely despised in my high school. And I was like a kind of a pretty, um, committed drug taking deadhead. I mean, I probably saw like, I don't know, maybe 15 dead shows when I was in high school and I probably maybe took acid at two or three of them. And so that was, that's a, you know, traveling and taking acid in some like hockey stadium in fucking Virginia. You know what I mean? Like that is real. You know what I mean? And, and it wasn't, like, the coolest thing you could do at all. Do you know what I mean? Like, there, the coolest thing you could have done then would have been seeing, like, I don't know, minor threat or government issue at some house party. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. I was not listening to Yes and, you know, or, like, or, or even The Clash. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. That wasn't, that wasn't like like really that relevant,
1: you know? I mean, I still think I mean that was definitely, I mean, independent, but you're right, it seemed like definitely in my school there was those kids that were into the hippie music, there were the hardcore kids, and then there were the kids that just listened to the radio. And I kind of fucked with both of them. Like the both of the 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 deadhead kids or the fish kids alongside the like punk, you know, were you were you aware of that stuff like if i mean you just mentioned those bands but like was there any interest because that's where i mean I, you could also i guess argue that the diy stuff was totally grateful dead too but that ethos that i think your career sort of gone through and the indie realm and the diy um it seemed to have if if that came from you know the dead and the you know genesis and yes like that's almost like more uh, more uh, interesting than if it just came from you uh, yeah. bowing at the altar of Ian Mackay, which I do.
3: <laughs> yes,
2: yes. Well, actually, it's it, 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 you're you're totally accurate. In well, in in a way that that's the way it happened. I was very intimidated by um, my brother. Actually, went to his and his, his high school classmates were in government issue, and I remember them inviting me to a house party, and I I actually clearly remember thinking I will get punched. Like I, I wasn't like a jock. I definitely wasn't a jock. I was just like a, like a dude who read like sci-fi books and tried to keep to himself. But I felt very (laughs) uncomfortable around people who were like, I I honestly like looked up to these like punkers and post-punkers. And I just didn't think that I could like, I didn't think that I could like sustain a conversation with them where they wouldn't think that I was like uh, a loser, you know, like I was very sure of that. Oh yeah. I was not confident or like in no way was I, I mean, I was in between, I was kind of in between the cracks in some ways because I wasn't, um, so this, what happened with me is like kind of probably like odd in one way. And that I went through, a very, very intense drug phase, very young, Mm -hmm. like 12 to 15, really, really intense. Like I was hard at work. I had an older brother. I had access to drugs. I had friends who were selling cocaine and weed and we like were completely into psychedelics and we were completely into like, whatever we can get our our hands on. Mm -hmm. (laughs) And and like, I think really the only thing that saved me is that, um, that there, it wasn't the scene that I was in. Opiates weren't a thing, which is, I remember smoking opium twice and, and loving it. And I don't remember. I just don't remember there being opiates really around, but there was everything else. Mm -hmm. And those other drugs really fucked me up. I did them too young. It probably caused permanent depression for me and like some other, like, you know, really confusing and, and kind of unknowable effects. But, but what happened for me was that when I was 15, I basically went completely clean, but I wasn't straight edge. Like I didn't identify as anything. I just was like, lost all my friends who still love doing drugs and didn't feel comfortable enough to like reattach myself to any other community. So, um, so I didn't feel comfortable any, anywhere. You know, I mean, this is like not, I mean, every who felt comfortable when they were 15. It's like, boo-hoo. Like I'm not, this (laughs) is like a a huge, you know what I mean? Like, like, but I'm just trying to tell you like what was tricky for me. And I, basically started out in, in like middle school and junior high. I was like a very, very good student. And then by the time I was in 11th grade, my average was floating somewhere between a D and a D minus. And lucky I hadn't uh, flunked out of any classes. And my principal, who was very, very, he said, he's like, listen, you can take English, 12th grade English in summer school, and I will write a letter for you to get into university of Maryland and this is only hope, man, because you're I, – I had the record at that point for the most suspensions of anyone in high school, Um and I had done some really fucking crazy shit. I mean, like, I don't know who I was at war with. I don't know who I was, like, getting back at, but, I mean, I had broken into the school numerous times. I – once I spray painted on the side of the school and, and you know, massive as high letters as I could paint LSD is fun. Like (laughs) on brickwork, you know what I mean? Like it took them like a week to get, you know, once I broke into the, my high school, um, Churchill high school and turned on all the ovens and baked the frozen, like, you know, a dozen pans of like frozen pizza and then threw them down the hallway. And I mean, I was doing crazy shit. And, and so, I did that. I took 12th grade English. I had nothing to lose. I was queen then. And I had lost a lot of my friends because they were still on that journey. And the thing is, is that half of them got like mega fucked up from continuing right down that road. You're just too young and you're starting to get into some, some more intense stuff. And then the other half were fine. So it really just depended on who it was. But so I got into University of Maryland a year, you know, I was younger than most students there. And that was like the most intense culture shock of my life was going to
1: college. Cause it was, you know, the, you didn't have anybody. I mean, I, for college, it was, if you want to fuck up, you can fuck up and then you're done. You kind of had oh, to yeah. step up. Yeah.
2: I, and I was very, very unprepared because I, I had lost everything as a student. I had like, I had like smoked my way into a fucking black hole and, you know, I was taking like, you know, I, I was um, trying to get into like the school of econ, which is like a separate school at university of Maryland, which was, I don't know. That's another thing. I I think I felt so guilty towards my parents that I, that I, that they pushed me into like some useful degree, (laughs) you know? And I, it ended up being incredibly lucky for me because of just running the studio. But um, I just remember struggling with like the most basic coursework and I, I just was so unprepared and I, but it was so, it was all voluntary. And for the first time in my life, I wasn't rebel. There was nothing to rebel against. Like no one really cared if I stayed in school. My mom was like the most loving and accepting person. and She had seen me suffer so much that she just wanted me to survive. And I ended up really thriving there, and I ended up getting a degree in econ, which which I do think became very important for me when when I started like run, running the studio.
1: Wow! And then so when you, you're, I mean, you're in Maryland, you're close to DC. Were you aware of that stuff, but it just didn't interest you, or even the ethos of that, because it's almost like you you did it naturally uh, anyway
2: you know, it's so weird. Okay. I'm going to, I'll tell you a a story. I think that will illustrate everything. So, so when I, one summer, um, in, I was living in Rockville with my mom. And I think this was the summer before I got into Maryland. Um, I was working at a grocery store and I fell in love with someone named Susan Anderson Osborne that was working there. and, She was like absolutely fucking on it. She was completely current and savvy. Her taste in music was so far beyond what I was like, what I was like listening, you know, stuff that I was listening to. And I remember she had a few friends over at her house. This is before we became a couple. And I, I just remember feeling very intimidated by her friends. And I, there was an Elvis Costello record that had just come out. So I bought it on vinyl, and I brought it over
3: to her, <laughs> to her,
2: to her um, her house, and I put it on. And then after like two or three songs, I remember that she and it wasn't rude at all. She just walked over to the turntable and then just like took the record off, and then and then put on something else that was like Susie and the Banshees or some deeper shit, you know, or Echo and the Bunny Man, or just some like way more modern, relevant stuff to like her and her friends. And then of course to me, and that moment changed my life. And it wasn't a shame thing at all. And it wasn't, she wasn't being uncool at all. She was being actually just like totally matter of fact. And I don't think she ever would have perceived it as like a slight, but it was almost like, I remember purging my record collection after that because I knew that like one day she would have my house. And it wasn't, again, it wasn't a matter of being like cool or uncool. It was a matter of like, are you connected to the current culture on any level? You know what I mean? And like, and like, we had that too. Like I, there's bands I record and they like, they literally have stopped re- listening to music in like 2003. And it's, it's actually totally weird. It's like a time warp thing. You know what I mean? It's it's like, it, and it feels Somewhat funny sometimes, and it also feels like depressing. You know what I mean? And like, I just that moment changed my life, and I actually too. If I you know I was completely in love with Susan, and then I I allowed her to kind of like guru me into like a different way of listening to music, and it it is still with me. You know. How, but, yes, what I
1: became what changed? Oh, it, right. Was it like more of a? It was awareness or. Uh, was it a, was it a, what was the, what was the piece that sort of opened you up? I think that she was
2: just much more interested in like fucked up music. She was more interested in dissonance. She was more interested in like, like, like anti-performance and like actual, like, like energy on, you know, like, um, I remember she played me drums and wires. I mean, fuck. Yeah. Like, like, you know what I mean? Like, she played me Gang of Four. You know, she 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 played me Wire. Like, I mean, holy fuck. Like, that to me was dangerous.
3: Mm-hmm. You know what
2: I mean? And Can and things like that. Like, Noi, like, she was so far ahead of the curve as far as, like, my own experience was, you know, was at the time. That, like, it it, again, these moments, these galvanizing moments are... In, like when your brain chemistry permanently changes like these are really really important and that that happened with me being, and it's and Susan. I mean, it's funny because i think about that like how that in many ways i was like a kind of like a very confused shy and and like it's probably like really intensely safe, self-hating you know kid that like i i I really was intimidated by like DIY punkers. And I ended up being like super DIY punk. (laughs) Like, like, you know what I mean? Like, like, and however, like, you know, I don't look like it or really like act like it, but like the way that I think about how my life unfolded and just the absolute brutality of trying to run a business on your own and booking your own tours and doing all that shit that you like admire when you're dipping into that world. Like, I mean, it's like, it's kind
1: of funny. I fucking love that. And out of I've interviewed God knows how many people, that was the first time it's had that that trajectory. Cuz usually it's I know, the, it the kid happened. gives them a minor threat record and then they're off to the races or they got an indie rock record, REM and then they off to the races. It's, it was like you were intimidated yeah. into it.
2: <laughs> mm-hmm. 100% and shame, and shamed into it, but but it also came in some weird way too. It 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 came like like, later, but it really came to me. Do you know what I mean? When I figured out the aspect of community that you need to sustain yourself as a working-class, lower, you know, like, middle-class artist, like, the the kind of safety net that you're seeking and the the connection, the true connection that you're seeking, like, the, and the, the, the kind of the socialist ethos of, like, art-making... It was it was it burned into my DNA. It wasn't just like a position. You know what I mean? It was like a it was like an, an unerring like compass, you know?
1: That's it, almost and, like and, you yeah. delayed it. It's almost like that mid when you were probably on your bender. <laughs> it was you yeah. were almost like your brain was like waiting for it. Yeah, I, I you're probably right, man. That's really yeah, cool. Absolutely. The, the, it, it was must have been that powerful. And to have it happen that late, it's one thing when you're a kid. And you've got, you know, the world, it's another one when it's later. Oh, absolutely. Yeah.
2: Because it was never a, a peer experience for me. You know, it wasn't like, I, I really, you know, every, we all do what our friends do and that's totally cool. You know what I mean? And I had like, like a completely different friend group and And I think it was like all this stuff came out of being like really, really isolated during college. And when I left college, I moved to San Francisco to to try to sustain and be in a relationship with Susan, um, the girl who picked up the needle on that Elvis Costello record. And so it just, it came to me in a completely different way and it wasn't, it wasn't part of a scene at all. It was just like a, like a personal epiphany,
1: you know? Isn't that interesting about that? That even if you talk about you weren't part of the scene, I mean, it wasn't, it wasn't shows, it wasn't record swaps. It was sort of this out of body experience just on the music. And I think Or even just that, like the community. And that's what I think is so powerful about it. It's, you talk about that safety net or true connection. If there's people at work and you say a couple bands or you just mention something and you're instantly at ease if they say X, Y, and Z. And it's not a cool thing. It's not, it's just a, oh, I can, you know, you get it. You get the, the ethos. And I think for you to have that happen like that, that's a, that's really powerful.
2: Yeah, I I agree. It changed my life, man, for sure.
1: Do you remember the when you realized that you could write a song? Do you do you remember that moment?
2: Yeah, I was. My mom bought me a four track when I was um, when I was I think I was thirteen, and it was a four two four a Tascam four two four, and I became like really really obsessed with like multi track recording, and I I, I had some piano kind of like theory. And I, I had kind of, you know, I was just taking in, in, in my middle school, there was like height, there was actually like guitar. There was like a guitar class. You could take, I mean, it was a public school, but they had like a music class where guitar was available to, you know, for for studies. So I started taking guitar like classes in middle school and it, just the experience of just going into—I I lived in, in in like the basement of of we lived in like a like a town. It was like a townhouse, and we lived in and I lived in the basement, so I had like a certain amount of like sound isolation and um and space from the rest of my family. And so there was a local rock station called DC One Hundred and One. Yeah, I, it, I'm, it has to yeah, it has to be obliterated now, but like they had this, like, it's wild because they had this, like, Sunday night show. I think it was, like, at 11 p.m. or midnight. And it was, like, a local demo show or some, like, you know, just send in your shit. And so I, I wrote a song, I recorded it, and, and I mailed it in. And I actually was so, um, you know, I, confused. And also, I was not, like, an egotistical kid. Like, I just did not ever think that it would be played. I just I wanted to... You know, it's like a lotto ticket thing. And then a couple months later, I was listening to the show and they played the song. And it that, 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 again, was one of those, like, crazy, I remember being, like, jumping up and down and going, like, insane to hear the song. Because it's super compressed and limited and loud and, and exciting on, you know, it's probably brighter and, like, it just sounds like it's being... Crank through a fucking lightning bolt. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. like I just couldn't believe how um, exciting it was that what I was doing was like being transmitted out there.
1: What did they say? Did they say anything before? Did they, did they front sell it or back sell it?
2: No, they probably were. I don't remember, but they were probably like, that's from, from (laughs) that's probably just some rickety ass. Like, you know what I mean? My graveyard show. where They just like, list in a hurry like the nine things they just played and then they move on i mean i actually just don't remember i was just so overwhelmed and yeah i mean those i mean i'm kind of giving you like these massive markers
1: what happened after that then you must have been so motivated to that four track must have got some extra work
2: yeah i mean i probably made I don't know, 30 full lengths on that thing that no one ever heard, that I learned how to write songs and I learned how to put together a record. And my brother listened to him and he gave me feedback and he was savvy and he, he loved me. And so that's, yeah. I mean, no one could say that I didn't use every piece of, musical gear that was put in front of me that's for damn
1: sure that's amazing i mean again the there was a radio show in i grew up in vermont which super small place not much going on they had a you know a, a like a, like a metal show on the classic rock station on Saturday nights for two hours. And it was at the same time as headbangers ball. So I would have headbangers ball on the TV and have the radio show on, and they would be giving away tickets or CDs. And you know, they, you would try to request and like, you know, get it on there. And when you did, you had that same feeling. I, I never had my song played on the radio, but that must've been like two. It's like, wait a minute, this is my town. And they're, you know, saying something at that age, That's like a No, it's nuts. It's nuts. It's nuts. (laughs) It is it's It's like it's like it's like a hundred Instagram likes if 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 we need to relate it to something today. (laughs) I know.
2: Well this is how nuts it is. Like I've been doing I've made records for you know for fifteen the past fifteen years, for the past twenty years I've made records. And I never, ever turned on the radio and heard one of my songs. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I never <laughs> turned on a college radio station on tour. You know what I mean? Like, it's rare. I mean, I'm sure it happens if you're Supion on Stevens, but it's actually, like, quite rare to catch someone playing on actual, like, broadcast.
1: And it's not like the DC yeah, 101 told you. Play. Like, you had to listen. No, they didn't. had to listen.
2: And, and honestly, if I just imagine that I hadn't have like turned on the radio, I mean, I, I, it's not like I was like camping out every weekend. You know what I mean? Like, like I, I could have easily, you know, not heard that and not had my brain like kind of reform every single neural pathway for the rest of my life and like done something else, which, Hey, who knows? Maybe, maybe it could have been like amazing too. I mean, I, I think all of this is, Great. I think that what, whatever thing you forge forge out is you're, you're gonna it's gonna be a clusterfuck regardless of what happens. So
1: I love that. I love that you didn't even know. And it, what if you weren't listening, or you your mom called you upstairs yeah. something real quick? Like what would yeah. have happened? Uh, I love that. I mean, I always think too of when you're before the cell phone, you would go to you would tell everybody, hey, we're meeting at the mall at three to go to the movie. And it's not like you were texting on the way and double checking and where are you? Did you just park? Like, I'm here. No, if you're not not in front of the movie theater at three, you're not going to see American Tale. That's just how it is. Absolutely.
2: Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. And touring without cell phones. Holy shit, man. I mean, I'm sure this is like a, like a, it's like a. Kind of potentially boring topic because anyone who had to do it without a cell phone wants to talk about it because it was so unbelievably annoying. But like, <laughs> <laughs> like, so let's not talk about it. But
3: God was annoying.
1: So you moved to SF, and the what was the what was the uh, it was it was a girl, right? That's why you moved.
2: Yeah, yeah, and and we didn't make it, and like I, I like she. Yeah, we didn't make it, and it sucks, but that's life, so, you know, what, what are you going to do?
3: Yeah. <laughs>
2: Still, it's, funny, it's like There's, like, losses that you just can't take. Do you know what I mean? Like, yeah. Like, there are bigger losses that I've had that I've been, like, like, completely fine with, like, accepting, but that one stuck with me for, like, a surprisingly long time. But, yes, we didn't work out, and then I just kind of, like, filtered into, like, local bands. I took classes at UC Berkeley and I wanted to, you know, I, I I did like well enough at, at university of Maryland that it was conceivable that I could have um gotten into some UC system grad program. So I started taking classes at UC Berkeley and then I got into a band and played my first, really my first live show outside of playing like, like, my high school talent show. It was like, I only actually played two live shows before this show. Wow. One was a high school talent show. Yeah. And I remember at the high school talent show, that was the first time I'd ever played live. And I remember that we were very, like, di- I remember feeling that we were very disorganized and, like, overwhelmed by playing in front of people. And there's, it was in, like, an auditorium, but there's probably, like, 30 or 40 people there. And I remember putting my guitar in the case and forgetting to clasp it and picking oh. up my guitar and then the guitar fell out and then people in the audience laughed at me which I think now I would literally be in tears if I did that to myself. I would just think it's the funny thing but that like humiliation also really somehow oddly like I needed to correct that. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Somehow I needed to get back on stage and like not be a joke you know and then the second time I played we, we played at a I was in this band called the id and this was, we were in high school and we covered um, echoes side, like uh, the, the pink Floyd tune. Um, and I guess the side one of metal, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. So we, we covered that in its entirety and we, we, we had like a set of like, basically we were like a cover band that did like, you know, psych and like stony shit. And we did, like pretty well for the first set and then we decided to do cocaine because we were all a bunch of drug addicts. And we did a bunch of like a bunch of rails and then played our second set and we were just completely I remember being like like also totally humiliated by like, whoa, we you can this is this is fragile. Like you can ruin this, you know? And we were terrible. And so the third show I played was a show in San Francisco and I was probably like 27 at the time. And I wanted to be a teacher. I didn't want to be in a band. I, that wasn't even an option for me. Do you know what I mean? Like I was working on, on fishermen's work serving like frozen crab to tourists,
3: you know? I mean, it was like,
2: I was working, I was serving Japanese tourists who were coming to get like, you know, crab and soft serve ice cream and like, you know, like, canned chowder
3: served Mm to them
2: on like massive banquet trays you know and it was a brutal job but i was staining myself and and i played one show at the sixth street rendezvous and there was probably six people there and it like that was it i was like this is what i want to do
1: wow i mean that's great i mean again you're like you know but think of how late that is too
2: I know I so late and my path is so weird. Do you know what I mean? Like I don't think it's, it's good or bad. I just think it's like, it's just a weird path for someone to really like commit to playing music. Um,
1: what you reminded me about your second show was I I was paid to play for my mom's boss's daughter's birthday party and it was, Mm -hmm. they rented out a thing. I asked another guitar player to come by to play with us and he was high on acid and I couldn't get him to play the song that we were playing. So he would start a different song while we played. And so I would, I, to keep him up there, I just turned off the amp. And so he wouldn't even know if he was on or off. And he kept looking at his guitar, trying to figure out why the sound wasn't happening. And finally I like unplugged it. So he, the entire show we're playing for my mom's boss's daughter and he's, not even making a sound. It was one of those moments where I was like, I do not want to do that. <laughs>
2: that's, that's pretty incredible. Right? Like, that's nuts.
1: <laughs> that's when I said, don't do drugs, Tom. Don't do drugs. <laughs> yes. <laughs> that I, is not a whole lot of love. You are playing, uh, you know, another yes. song. <laughs> yeah. So. Yes. What was the leap to the studio? And when did you start thinking about it? Because you did have the four-track, which I think your mom, that's another huge moment. Your mom giving you a four-track. That's fucking amazing.
2: Well, she always supported me. Like, she was the, really the only person that, like, ever... that She had, like, a sustaining and, like, true faith in me that was probably completely delusional and just strictly based on me being her son. But, like, it was the most sustaining and... Like it it was the, like the through line of my life for sure. And so, yeah, so I was completely in love with like studio culture and looking at the back of records or gates, you know, the inside of like the gatefold and seeing like these like, these like studio shots, you know, in like the middle of the Queen record or like Amagama, all the, like the photos of like percussion laid out in the road and like, any kind of studio or console photograph to me was just like iconic. Like it did something to me. And when I, everything with me is late. When I was 31, I started tiny telephone. And the way that started was we were me and nine other people were renting a, uh, a pretty modest warehouse in, um, in San Francisco in the mission. Um, and it, you know, the mission now is like nice and it's, a presentable, you know, area of town. And it wasn't like, it wasn't like, uh, you know, like uh, Karachi, but it was like kind of like a busted up area when we rented it. And and we rented, uh, I think it was, I want to say it was 1,700 square feet and it was $660. So it was, there was 10 people. We paid $60 each a month. And we rehearsed, it was like a rehearsal co-op. And so we slowly decided to turn it into a recording studio. And we, you know, the other people in the co-op were savvier than me. One of them was a contractor and we would just build on weekends. And honestly, mostly they like were more motivated than me because I didn't see that as a, I didn't see how it would work. I didn't see how a co-op would work with everyone, you know, having completely different ideas and, it just felt like there was so, it was hard enough to even schedule like a band rehearsing that it just didn't feel like. So eventually the co-op started, um, because a band broke up. Another band moved out of town and one of like an engineer hero of mine owned a studio called Blowdown that I'd recorded in once. And he lost his building because they eminent domain him when the, the, the San Francisco Giants stadium, got like uh, approved and he was somewhere in like the center field or left field of this, of the the AT&T park. So they like kicked him out and I went to a show that I knew he was going to be at and I pitched him on, Hey, do you want to be my partner? This was the first move of many that I did like this. So I went and found him and he was again, a big hero. His name's Greg Freeman and he's a legend here. And he actually was working. He's, we've kept in touch so much. He was working in the studio, like last year working on a record. So I still, he's still, he's still in my orbit. Like, so he, um, he, you know, he, he got it. He was like, yeah, when you see the space. And I was like, man, like it's kind of, is the shell could work for you and we can like, you know, finish the construction you need and we'll all manage you and like book the studio and you'll just engineer everything. So it worked out. He came in and he's, he was so um, like revered and under market and like, like on the level that he just was like, I mean, he probably worked there 28 days a month. So it's just, it just was the start of the studio being busy all the time. And then I just, I kept leapfrogging on that idea. My next partner was John Croslin When Greg uh, retired from engineering full time, I like got into spoon heavily. And I got obsessed with their uh, the, the engineer that made their first three records. His name's John Croson. He currently lives in Austin. And I kind of like poached him from Austin and got him to move here. And he was my partner for five years. And it was the same kind of scenario where he brought gear. I booked him. I managed him. I kind of like took care of the studio. And he would take care of it for me when I started touring. And... So that slowly just got bigger and bigger and bigger where I was able to build a B room. And then slowly I was able to borrow money um, from banks and from like people on Twitter. And I was able to build Oakland. So from that beginning point from, you know, I was 31 when I started the business. I mean, I was a waiter at the time. (laughs) I mean, I was, I didn't really have anything going on at all. Do you know what I mean? Like I was in a very, very unsuccessful local band. I mean, I remember that we we could draw maybe 10 to 15 people at a show on a good night. And I was in that band for five years. So think about that.
1: I mean, also, too, I mean, you talk about this starting later and later. Sometimes you see on Twitter, you'll see like the, you know, this person wrote their first book at 40 or this person started this at 50. And I think your moments speak to that. Of if you build, if you do something instead of it's one thing. Yes, you can listen to music or watch TV or consume something, but when you make things or when you, like you said, reached out to Greg, it, it turns into things. And it doesn't matter what age it is, because if Absolutely. you've got an idea and this studio, you know, you starting it then. Um, or even if the band all, the, it, it, it doesn't matter. It, it like, so if you didn't start a band at 20, fine, start one when you're 30. I remember
2: being like 30 and thinking, fuck my life's over. Like, you know, like, like it felt like I was. it felt like there was absolutely no possibility or even like the cultural, like, like, um, like, it didn't even feel like the culture could say yes to me starting like a music career at that point. Do you know what I mean? It felt like the, this, this was, the door was like closed and that's like actually for the best. You know what I mean? Like, like, you know, there, there's, there are rules here that are just not like, you know, pushed, pushed against. And like, I, man, I mean, I I, 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 so I was a full-time waiter and I remember, The day – I still have the sign-in book. I remember it was like a a tin tin, like a sign-in book. And I remember writing – and I still have it. It's still at the studio. And I remember writing Tiny Telephone. (laughs) It was actually September 11th. 1997, and we actually had to change the anniversary, because it was just like, when we had a party, it just was like, not appropriate.
1: Yeah, it's not appropriate. <laughs>
2: like, yeah, just like, just move the day, you know I mean? Just slide it over a little bit. It was like, it was the 12th. Remember, <laughs> yeah, it was the 12th, absolutely the 12th. And I remember um, writing that in and being embarrassed, like, okay, this is too little, too late. You know? And I just didn't, you know, there's many days that I think it was too little, too late still, but that's just depression. You know, that's just my morbid, broken brain kind of beating me down. And it doesn't always do that, but sometimes it does that. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, basically I eventually learned that you can just like construct your own narrative if you do the work. I mean, it's not going to maybe be the most elegant thing or the most successful thing, but it's better than like, like getting bitter that something didn't happen. I Mm -hmm. I really can't ever feel that, you know?
1: I mean, you're right. Just, just start doing stuff. And when you meet the right people and you start talking and you have a great thing that you believe in, people are going to gravitate to it.
2: Absolutely. The, The other thing though, that's a problem with that is that I learned later is that you start to, you have to exert your will. To even like, like move one millimeter towards the direction that you want to go, and it's hard to not manipulate everyone all the time. Like in regards to everything, (laughs) I I mean, and I and I mean like, where should we go to dinner? Like, what (laughs) you know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. like, like it's like you become like kind of a monster in some ways. Like I'm I'm. I'm beginning to like have a insight that, that I'm not the, the the narrative that I tell myself about myself is, is not accurate. and, And I'm not like a terrible person, but I think I'm exhausting and I think that I'm manipulative and I think that I'm like, like really mentally ill sometimes in a way that can, cause a lot of damage to people around me and and there's way 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 worse people than me I'm like not toxic and I don't like cause long-term damage or do anything that's like squirrely but when you have to exert your will to like build a business you get kind of crazy you know what I mean you do and you can't turn it off so like for instance when you're starting to tell everyone that like We need to like build another location in Oakland that will cost a million dollars to build. And I will borrow all the money from using Twitter and guilting like tech people who feel like they're, you know, they don't want to push out artists, but it's part of what happens when, you know, trillions of dollars pour into like a small little geographic area. And you, I don't know. I just, I, I have like had some like maybe like dark insight into how, potentially exhausting I can be to be around
1: and that kind of sucks but also I think the the, the that drive I so I still so think it keeps people with you they it's almost that you're so serious about it and people are going to come along and they're going to understand that Sometimes it's difficult and sometimes it's easy. And I don't know. I, I I don't like the easy road. I think the, when you try something and it's not, it's never been done or this is, you know, this is the way it's always been. I can't stand that. Maybe that's the punk and hardcore in me. Like, I don't want that, but maybe that's what that is. It's like, this is a hard decision. I'm making it and I'm not going to fail.
2: And, and there is like with everything in life, there is like, there's just, there's the cost man there's like what's the cost of this transaction whether it's emotional or or like or just just like pure capital but i I think that yeah i'm sure the people in my life recognize that it's like this too i i believe from the people that i've recorded and produced and toured with and i'm friends with who are very very successful either front people or songwriters or they're branded in some way as like a writer of songs or books or poetry you have to have a strain of narcissism it will you will not fucking sustain yourself if you don't because you will be shredded by expectation criticism self doubt you will fucking lacerate yourself. And so you have to have a certain amount of narcissism. And so can you control it? Like, can you keep it in check? Do you recognize it? Like, I'm just trying to have enough insight to to minimize the damage of what I have, which is like a, a, a sociopathic, a potential for very light sociopathic manipulation, which sounds like an oxymoron.
1: Yeah, yeah, I know what you but, mean though. So do you, I also, yeah, you mentioned earlier, you know, the sort of the, you had that document and you kind of saved it with the analog recordings that you do. And you're very, you know, specific that that's how you want to do it. And I've, you know, there's been interviews and stuff about talking about that, but do you think about the preservation and the difference between a hard drive and a two inch tape? And maybe that goes even deeper to you're also a you know, of a, a, f- a photographer and photos and moments in time that might not seem important are important later. Do you think about that? Do you think about your legacy or other bands or even your life and, and, in, in that way?
2: I used to. I used to. You used and to? Really, How come? Really, I really, I really, I really used to believe, I don't think it's false, but I really used to believe that that, that was true. And I don't, um, I don't believe any of it anymore. <laughs> and I don't, I don't. It's not a sad. It was not a sad like realization. I just, I just don't, I don't believe so much of what I used to believe. And it doesn't mean that somehow I'm not perpetuating that stuff because I'm clearly running a business that's based on linear recording and like, it's almost like, it's like you know, I, I grow organic vegetables, but I'm somehow like, you know, into like GMO shit, you know what I mean? It's not, it's so complicated for me to even express for off, I, I don't believe that it matters if anything is preserved. I don't believe that it matters if, if something is perceived to be important or not. And, and maybe this is just like the dissolution of my own ego or like the, the, um, I don't know, my mom died two years ago, and it kind of like, it broke something in me that's like permanent. And it, it like, it kind of opened this like horrific door, this like vault into true death and true horror. And when I saw that, it just, none of this stuff mattered anymore. You know, and like, it's not, it wasn't, again, it wasn't like, like, what do I do now? This, what I believed in is not
3: true anymore.
2: It's just that I can't flex those same muscles anymore. You know, I don't, it's, I don't know if I'm nihilistic or I don't know if I just am really fucking sad. I don't, I don't know what it is, but, but like, I can't say with any precision, um, something definite about all of that stuff anymore in a way that I really, really lived it. I was willing to run up massive debts to like stake my claim in that, in that race. You know what I mean? Yeah. I like, I bought seven Studer 24 track machines. Like I was not fucking around, you know? And Again, like that may have also been smart on a business in a business you know sense that we're, we're we have a niche business that's successful because we've committed to a process that changes the way the record is made like if you record a linear tape record it's just simply a different record and I think that that can be inherently value valuable because there's nothing but pro studios in the u s you know there's probably like Fifty
3: thousand
2: studios. You know what I mean? Like, yeah. so it's great. I love it. I mean, I'm 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 a democratic person at heart, and I just think that if there's like pure democracy at work, that it has to be a good thing. Um, so I'm happy to like be part of the tiny telephone, like the ethos, but I don't I don't believe in it anymore. You know, mm-hmm. I'm, I'm not a true believer anymore.
1: It's interesting cuz the opposite happened. I had my dad passed away 2 years ago and the opposite thing happened where I wanted to remember things more because I we had mementos and we had things but I didn't have maybe the voice or I didn't have certain things. There were photos, but it just it it was it was almost like I had missed out. So there was moments where I'm remembering to document or remembering to think about those things with others. And when they do happen, it's almost like easier, if that makes sense. And I think from the music side, as a band, when you first start out, your first show and you had those great memories, but what if you had the photo or what if you had like a clip of that and what does that help you as a career, but also what does that do to have you remember that moment and maybe think about it in a different way than if, if you didn't know, if you didn't have the photo, or if you didn't have it.
2: First off, I'm really sorry about you losing your dad, because, man.
1: That shit fucks shit you up, man. It does. Yeah. Fucking cancer, but man. It, <laughs> I'm really sorry. Yeah. I'm really sorry. But you know, but that's kind of <laughs> you. Right? It 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 it, it does. It, it clicks something in you. Yeah.
2: I wish that I had had your. I think your reaction is like more mature, and I think you know, my mom left me a voicemail like two hours before she died. And like, I still haven't listened to it. Really? It's probably that. Yeah. And it's still there. It's archived. I will listen to it one day. And it's probably the biggest regret in my life in some ways that I can't really face. I can't face it. You know what I mean? Like I'm a yeah. strong fucking person, you know? And then, like, I can't do that. And like, it's, incredibly troubling to me to reflect on my family life and and the memory of my my mom and my family it's just it's just un, it's unbearable and it feels like i can't escape this like baseline of of pain and you know i i don't know so is it more for of, you
1: kind of... living in the moment and moving forward and tomorrow's this and versus looking back at this time
2: at this time. Yeah, because it's simply just unbearable to reflect on the past. I just, I can't, I didn't even understand what that would mean. I, 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 just would, would never have seen this coming because I've been like a very realistic and not unsentimental, but I'm, I'm like really quick to heal. And I'm, I'm pretty rigorous in my thinking about like the real shit, you know, like I, I get it. I understand. I knew my mom was going to die. You know what I mean? I know all this stuff, but like, and, and nothing has ever affected me ever in the way that that when my mom died, what it did to me. It just, it was, it was like, like 10,000 times more like fucked up for me.
0: And I, and
2: I, I, I really, I had such a good relationship with my mom and she was like the only stable, like force in my life. I, I had a very chaotic um, childhood and I, I just, it just, bro- it broke something, you know, and I'm, I'm, I'm like trying to, I'm I'm really trying to, to, to put it back together, you know? And, 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 it, and, and, I, I, I probably will, you know, I've, I've, I've str- I've had like mental health issues for my whole life. And I, and I, and I, have like, I definitely like won those battles, you know? I mean, I, I have not, I haven't folded, you know? And that's like, what are the, you know, the flaming lips to like the fight for our sanity is the fight of our lives, I'm paraphrasing because I don't remember it. But it, but it is true. I mean, I fought my my entire life just to be like happy, you know.
1: You know that brings up sort of an interesting th- a couple points I wanted to bring up is the sort of the you know your music coming into my life uh, when it came when the your first solo record and then also kind of that term of emo and how. People just see this as like a sad thing or, you know, it's it's depressed, it's your you're cutting. And I never thought of it that way. I thought of it as euphoric, uh uplifting, um, you know, something of these moments of, you know, music were hitting an emotional chord, but it wasn't necessarily negative or sad. And I find joy in music. Music is joy. We get to do music. And so the that point of you know, that word, you know, being emotional or even you saying, I've had stuff with mental health and that being okay a long time ago was sort of frowned upon and you couldn't say anything. And now it's okay to. And I think it's great that that happens. But the word emo in itself, I don't know if you had any interactions with it or remember hearing that term, but. It just seems like, you know, it's obviously the word everybody wants to run away from um, still to this day, but it just seems like it's got this negative thing and it's okay that you said I'm having trouble. Yes. Yeah.
2: Well, to me, like the, like, like emo stuff to me was like, it was like vulnerability. Do you know what I mean? Like that's when I think about. Like, like, Jeremy Enix' first solo record. Like I think that is like that to me. That was like one of the most important records for me. And it was like the it was just an incredibly vulnerable, like set of songs. Like that to me is what what drew me into that world. You know. But the the funny thing is about stuff that's not like like loved and accepted. I remember I got obsessed with this band called Prefab Sprout and I mean obsessed. They put out a record called Two Wheels Good. I bought it when it came out and you couldn't pay someone to like that band when that record was released. I mean, they might take your money. (laughs) But I mean, and especially the record before that called Swoon, which was like a very irritating record for people to hear at that time. Like, and I mean like 99 out of a hundred people of my peers <laughs> and that record, that band has like somehow clawed their way into like this, like amazing place of respectability, which I find to be so fucking funny. Like, and I love that record like top to bottom and I've loved it forever. So I think that like anything that is kind of like, like dismissed it's very powerful like that's good that's a good position you want to. that's fine it's all good
1: you know what's interesting about that is i was going to bring up one of your records that was you know it was great review on pitchfork and how do you feel about you know and that can be a blessing and a curse these are these are both ways this isn't one or the other but it's interesting when a band is shit on by it could be any outlet and I think that has lasting effects and I think emo got you know ridiculed in the press and disrespected for years and years and years and years and now 20 years later we're getting retrospectives on how great it was when then it's like what 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 happened if it was called indie rock and maybe they got a flaming lips tour instead of a shitty review and sort of you know dismissed like what those sort of I mean for better for worse or easier harder you know, having that happen for one of your records, I think it was pixel revolt. Um, you know, having yeah. that happen, it, it's, it's, it's almost like, I I don't know. I like, I get like, a, such a weird feeling of like, what happens when you have a great review and like s- staying up for it. Well,
2: you know, it's funny because I think about this stuff and I mean, we know that music is like context and like the, 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 the construct is so fake and phony. It might as well be like, like, like a like a like a press release from like like a, the White House or something. I'm not speaking much. I'm seeing like I know what any, you mean. Administ- any, any administration. This is such a completely like they're records that are like my friends are like, man, you got to hear this record. It's like a radical kind of like super out. Uh, like album that I think will blow you away. And I, and I listened to it and I'm just like, man, this is like, this is like fucking you're driving to like Chuck and cheese to pick up the kids or something. It's like the most suburban shit I've ever heard in my life. But somehow the context of this music that the, the affiliated acts, the, the, the savviness of the, of the player. I mean, so much of it is completely phony. And, and I see this from the inside all the time. And I don't, it doesn't bum me out. I just think it's like, oh, that's really good marketing. If you can, if you can make anything fly, you know what I mean? Mm -hmm. It's so often completely disconnected from the actual content of the music, you know, that it's, again, it's like that clothing thing. It's just like, what kind of shirt are you wearing to the party? And does it actually mean anything about what you're going to say? Do you know Mm -hmm. what I mean? Because you might look like hip as fuck, but then like start like, you know, kind of walking back like you you know, that maybe Ben Shapiro has a few interesting things to say. He's not a total asshole. And you're like, Oh my God, this person's fucking crazy.
3: Yeah.
2: <laughs> you know what I mean? So like I, and this getting to the review
3: thing, like the reviews,
2: I think it's like, if someone tells you you're really attractive when you're, when you're younger, male or female, it fucks you up. And if you don't have a completely like solid, developed ego, you will do weird shit. You will have weird thoughts. You will do weird stuff aesthetically, musically, and otherwise, and live by the sword, die by the sword. When you get a good review, you're going to get slews of bad reviews. You could be fucking Neil Young. You could be Jeff Tweedy. You could be Tame Impala. You could be Death Grips. It doesn't matter. Like, if you even... Like if you take the positive shit that people write about you, you're actually even more vulnerable to the negative because your brain is broken because you're a fucking musician. You know what I mean? You're like a songwriter and you're really sensitive. And it's almost like you learn to tune out all of the positive stuff because when you're playing and touring, people come up to you after a show, great show. No one ever comes up to you after a show and gives you criticism, ever. So you just start to immediately tune out anything that's positive. And then when someone criticizes you, it it actually sounds like the truth. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. Like, think about it. Like, someone's actually giving a counter-narrative that's, like, not, like, a, a s- socially pressurized, like, statement. You're just like, oh, I guess that you know i that that i'm my best record is behind me like that sounds accurate you know what i mean like 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 that's that just happens do you think that takes
1: context do you think it takes someone that knows like if someone reviews a john vanderslice record and they skew it but they skew it in a way that you saw that they've actually listened to every single record since uh does that need to happen you think that's the worst. Like I think if you're at least if someone, so you want, is it somebody coming in clean doing it or is it somebody that, that it knows your history? Do you think it doesn't matter?
2: I think that this is what hurts. What hurts. It's simply just, it's just that you are a striving multinational micro business. And you need everyone lined up behind you. It's not even your ego on a certain level. It's keeping your crew, whether it's like your label or your publicist, it's or your TM or your bandmates, it's keeping everyone excited and on board. And when you get like, you know, like cultural pushback, it just it rattles the boat. You know what I mean? It like, and, and it, that's what actually fucks with your head more than anything. <laughs> like, like, first off, I'm like a first amendment absolutist. Like I don't have any problem with anyone writing me an email. That's like, this is why this record is not, doesn't work as a record. Like anyone can say anything and that they're even engaging me in a conversation with like amazing. I'm completely, my DNA says, yes, to criticism i don't have any issue with it at all but the thing that really fucks with you is when it's an outlet that has power and pitchfork is definitely one of the very few that have power and that can rattle the crew i mean fuck i was um travis morrison from Oh, right. Dismemberment plan. He did that record with Chris Wall a Tiny Telephone that got a 0.0. You're
1: fucking right.
2: Yep. He did it at Tiny Telephone. And, I, and also that record was actually like, it's actually a pretty good record. It's, it's he, the reason why, this is my personal belief. And I, I don't, I can't really, I can't really back this up, but this is my personal belief. Travis at the time was very pro-invasion of Iraq. And I believe that he was saying some of this publicly. And I think that that's part of the reason why he got a 0.0. Because if you listen to the record, it actually, it's nothing to target. It doesn't make sense. It's not like a departure in many ways from dismemberment plan. It's not like a it's not like a, a, a void. Mm-hmm. Of a, it's not a sellout. It's not a statement. It's not a...
1: And he did no, it with Chris Walla, who is like fond upon.
2: Yes. And so I, I just saw his crew basically just like say, okay, we can't really like back this record because it's so broken now. And again, it's like if you got like 10,000 negative reviews on from Yelp in like one day, <laughs> like, like, you know what I mean? Like, like, like that is—it's real. And and criticism, like it. The cool thing is that if you're a careerist, this stuff becomes less and less important. It's actually—it's—it doesn't move the needle as much as you'd think. When you get a positive review, and it doesn't actually move the needle as much as you think in the negative way either. So as you keep making records and forge your own identity and just try to do the best fucking work you can, you become a little bit more immune, but your ego can get really fucking sore, man. Like, because you are exhausted from like, you basically are criticized for a living and and it's beautiful because if you're not being criticized, you're not making fucking den, man. And there's no one showing up when you play in Hamburg. You know what I mean? Like you have to be criticized, but there also has to be an arc to the criticism. Like it's not a story to just say that like this person is making a good record every time. (laughs) Like there's not, it doesn't happen. And also there has to be an arc to this stuff. And like, I don't, I don't have any negative feelings about this stuff, but, but I, I do, I do think that like, I have stopped believing in concrete pronouncement pronouncements about art, in the same way that that I don't really believe in like tape and linear recording in quite the same way. Because I believe everything's context, and I believe that everything is like mutable. Like you listen to music, I believe strongly that you listen to music a lot based on your own stereo. Like how do you listen to music? If you listen to music only in the car, I can tell you that you're not going to be listening to classical music probably. It doesn't make sense. Mm
3: -hmm. And
2: if you are even remotely open to rap music, you might really start to skew everything you listen to to rap because rhythmic information, the dynamic information, the energy, the um, kind of like sonic footprint, it works with a car stereo. And it's interesting because I have three... The stereos that I listen to. I have one in my living room that's like a as a turntable and it has good speakers and like I listen to a lot. I'm listening to Suspiria, the Tom York record a lot. I'm listening to a lot of like hi-fi kind of like interesting art records, you know, like like it's, it's stuff that's like actually like, you know, like the Prefab Sprout or I'm, I'm just going to tell you like Tangerine Dream Rubicon the Patrick um, Cowley record, Heroes, David Bowie, Chief Commander Ebenezer Obey, Noise 70, 86, sorry. Um, so stuff like that. And then I have another stereo that's like a budget stereo hooked up to Spotify at my desk. And I listen to like just ragged, you know, lo-fi indie shit and rap all day long. I don't ever listen to anything. You know what I mean? Like the stereo has dictated that. It's what, it's what sounds good on it. And in my car, it's 100% rap music. Like with, I, I, when I tour, I probably listen to like six or seven hours of rap a day. I mean, it's insane. I don't, or podcasts, you know? And so that's, I've kind of modulated a lot of my views. You know, David Burns said in in his book, which I did not read, but someone told me this, that the, the size of venues and the acoustic spaces really changed how bands wrote music and perform music. And it's true. It makes total sense.
1: Yeah. And I think too, the you saying earlier about being exhausted from it and you having to kind of push through and, 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 and be prolific, but also look at somebody's career as a whole. And I think it's now it's like, you've got, oh it 's this last record, and they're they 're done and I think it because of the internet and how fast things are shared it's sometimes maybe that that definitely happened with a Rolling Stone review or something like they were done or but there was also less time for people to sort of discuss it back and forth somehow yeah. like it wasn't a it wasn 't as just this immediate like well, this is it, and we 're moving on and guess what Monday I have a clean slate i don 't even remember what Friday was, but It just seems like if you're prolific and you stick through it, you've got a certain track, like a band that's still together and writes. they're on their 10th record and they've got an arc and people debate and talk about the records, kind of like Death Cab. You know, people debate. But if someone goes away and comes back, there's almost a different response, like a nostalgic response when the music never went away, they just went away. So you really have to be... And then people responding to that. You have to be so strong in what you do. And I think you probably see that in the studio with people on their sixth record or seventh record. And almost, it, you can almost see it in their eyes.
2: Oh, absolutely, man. I mean, you, and you see both. You see people who are incredibly resolved and very, like, clear about their marching orders. And then you see other people who are totally lost. You know, like they they they're almost like they're involuntarily. You know what I mean? They don't want to play anymore. You know what I mean? Like they're they're like been roughed up. You know, and like I don't know, man. It is, it's the real shit. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> it's the real shit. I all I know is that like <clears throat> for me, I just had so much depression in the past couple of years, and the and so much of just like my my kind of directive was to stay alive and it completely changed the way that I felt about everything else. And, and I don't think that that was like wisdom or true knowledge. I just think it's like a response to like being at war with yourself, you know? And so it kind of focuses things in a way and hopefully (laughs) figure it out.
1: But doesn't music help that John?
2: making this record helped me for sure. I mean, in many ways it kind of saved me because I know how to write music. I know how to write a song and I'm no matter what we're like, we survived by getting good at craft. You know, this is whether it was like growing food or like coopering or tending to horses or like hunting We, this is what we've been doing for thousands and thousands and thousands of years. It's in our, it's in like our blood. And so, yeah, when, when, when you like reconnect with the craft that you've been like, you know, trying to like get good at your entire life since you were 12 or 13, it really, it just, I was so much nicer to myself, you know, I was so much more sympathetic and I was, I had this like genuine, like belief that I was doing good work according to my own ideals. And it, it just, it changed kind of the tone of my interior conversation. And also it's a very communal, um, project you know you're with friends for many many days and hours and touring is like a a community celebration and that stuff really helped because I was very isolated before I did that and just the ability now that I it's it's great because I'm not that big when I tour like I'm a small indie I'm a very I'm a working class indie artist but I have um, Bob from Undertow is my booking agent with, like, house shows. So I have this, like, house show circuit that I can tap into that's really modular. You know, I could say, hey, I want to do, you know, eight shows in the southeast in, in like, March. Let's, like, scope it out, get ha- houses. And it's, like, a sustainable working-class job. And then I have Mahmood from, from Flower Booking who does club stuff and I I don't like playing clubs and I'm also not really big enough to play clubs. So it's like a, you know, it can be like a, it can be a tough position to be in and it can be financially kind of fucked, but, um, but I'm doing, you know, some club shows just because of the record and it, and it worked, you know, it's just better for the rollout of a record to actually not be in a sold out house show that's completely off the radar from people. (laughs) And you know, and, and so that feels really good for me that I like clawed my way back into that. Even though it's very modest, like that feels that I always have this.
1: Feels like a win. I get
2: really, <laughs> it feels like a win. And it feels like if I'm get like feel like I have this, like I'm really, really lonely and I, I, I need to f- have this feeling of like traveling and driving on the 80 and like meeting up with friends that I haven't seen in a year. I have these little, like, pockets of these dates booked, and it makes me, like, really happy, you know? Like, it gives me, like, this future me that's, like, a... I know I'm happy when I tour.
1: What I heard when I listened to the record, you'd sent me the, you know, the SoundCloud stuff, and now that you talk about this, I can feel a connection through the fingers as you're playing the notes or playing the keys or guitar of the moments and what you were trying to go through in that I, that's how i felt and it just like the song like let it go like just the yeah. the 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 sounds the 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 output it it seemed like it was kind of it it was running through you out your fingers onto the instrument
2: yeah, because I was crazy, man. I mean, that was like the height of my craziness. The the bummer about that SoundCloud link is that the album actually sounds so much better than that. <laughs> it's remarkable to me how bad the SoundCloud code is. I think the SoundCloud almost has to be targeted because they're so much worse than Dan Camp, and they're 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 like even for like streaming the street like. Apple Music sounds so much
1: better. Wow. It's crazy. Like, it should be better. I yeah. love that. I really, you said the I same even, thing that a kid would if he sent me a demo. Yeah. Yeah, I know.
2: It's kind of dumb and ridiculous. Yeah, <laughs> like, listen to it in this way. Or when people say to me, it's not mastered yet, and I'm like, what makes you think that mastering something is going to make it sound better? Like, like it actually might sound worse, you know? Like, But, yeah. but it is, like, I, I think nothing worse than sound bad. Uh,
1: honestly, having this record be a release and, and finding that community and, and, and getting back on tour, it's probably feels like a good routine again.
2: It, it feels like really necessary for me and it feels healthier than, than some of the stuff I was doing before. I mean, I was definitely like, I don't know, man, I was dipping back into drug use. I was definitely like doing like really unhealthy things without causing permanent damage, I was thinking and behaving in ways that were potentially uh, like awful.
1: Yeah. And, and, and so you can say music sort of got you out of that.
2: <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I mean, it saved me many times, you know, and, and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm, I feel like really, I don't know, at like, I have a very uncomplicated relationship with writing and recording. And it feels like that it's nice to be, to want to make records again. And I'll do it as long as I feel like doing it, but I definitely feel like continuing to record.
1: Is there anything that you've want to do that you haven't done? And obviously you'll do it later than everybody else based on everything else you've done. I'm kidding. Um, but any other, you know, dreams or aspirations that that you've been thinking about
2: I think I want to be in. I want to be in a relationship that's like, like a long-term, sustaining relationship. Like I think that that's my overall. Like, I mean, it's a tough thing to want because you can't game the system, but that's what I. That's the thing that I like desire most is being in a relationship with, with. Um, like someone is hopefully healthier than I am and and like I'm good in relationships and I'm good in partnerships and I'm, I'm like, I'm very lonely, you know, I've been like lonely for two years and it's like, it's just, it starts to fucking erode your, your like cells, you know, it's, it's really bad for you, you know, and, and I don't, I don't really have any doubt that it'll happen, but that's to me is the most important thing in my life. I don't, I'm not worried about the timeline for like another record or, I mean, that will most likely happen next year, but I I just want to be in a relationship. I want to share my life with someone, you know, and and I want to get out of debt too. I owe a lot of money from building the Oakland studio.
1: (laughs) That's key. The key to get out of debt. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Uh Yeah. Cool. Is there anything else you wanted to mention?
2: I really liked your questions, man. I I really appreciate it. And I and I felt like listened to and I felt like that that it was a completely present uh, event and that's all that we're after.